Sometimes it seems we are more divided than ever before. Unable to speak across the differences, we must engage to create the world we want for ourselves and our children. On Being's Better Conversations Guide is a free resource and reflection for beginning this adventure, creating new spaces for listening, conversation, and relationship. Because the point of speaking together differently is to learn to live together differently. Go to civilconversationsproject.org and find the Better Conversations Guide in the Resources tab. Again, that's civilconversationsproject.org. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Anand Girdar Das and Whitney Kimball Coe. Listen to our produced show with them wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Welcome. Um, I have to say, doing, I don't know, somehow this feels a little bit more like us doing this in our studio than doing a big public event. It feels like we're with family and coworkers, comrades. Um, so that's fun. And, you're, and we are taping this for broadcast. Um, and really thrilled you're all here. And I was so thrilled that Anand and Whitney agreed to be part of this. Um, I'm not going to do introductions and bios because you met both of them on stage yesterday. And you can Google their titles if you want to. Um, Anand, and I have to say, I've known Anand now for several years, and I've been saying his, wrong, his name incorrectly in my mind all this time. So I'm not, not the Giridharadas part. Yeah, weirdly you got that part right. I got that part right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anand Giridharadas um, is a journalist and writer. Whitney Kimball Coe is a, um, I asked Whitney how she liked to be described shorthand like this. And I had written down community member and community organizer, and she said, I am a participant in community. Um, she is also a, di- uh, um, a director, of, director of the National Center, t- say your title. I'm the Dir- director for national programs for national at the Center for Rural Strategies. At the Center for it's Rural Strategies. Yeah. And a participant in community. Um, they, their backgrounds are very different. They have two very different American stories, but they are both of the same generation. They're both in their mid-30s. And in my mind, are pioneers of a sensibility about what it means to be American that I believe is the future the last year or two have called us to, above all else, if we rise to this moment's generative possibilities. They are social artisans, they are calmers of fear, and they are weavers of something called common life in a changed world in which many challenges are in play. We're talking about so many of those challenges these two days, but none more significant than that we come to see and know our neighbors who have become strangers, our fellow citizens who have become strangers. Our human chasms are many and they are deep. And these two, from very different points of entry and points of, and different angles of, of approach, are stitching relationship across the ruptures 
that have made politics in the last few years the thinnest of veneers over the human dramas of fear and pain and hope and power and frailty. Um, they are living into the other possibility of our time, which Anand has put so beautifully, that we could dare to commit to the dream of each other as the thing that matters before every neon thing. You're also a poet, I should have said that. I want to start where I always start my conversations, whoever I'm with, um, to ask about the religious or spiritual background of your childhood, however you would start to talk about that. And Whitney, I want to start with you. Well, I come from um, a pretty typical religious background from uh, in the rural South. Um, my mother is Methodist, and her father was a Methodist minister, and his father was a Methodist minister, and his father was a Methodist minister. And all the way back to Ireland, um, I think the first Methodist minister, Naff, who came over from Ireland, was an itinerant pastor in Cades Cove. Um, region um, in the Great Smoky Mountains, and some people might be familiar with Cates Cove. Um, so I grew up going to church every Sunday and every Wednesday for choir practice, and I'm sure that laid the foundation for um, what I currently feel is just a practice of, of showing up in community. Um, and then when I reached high school, I started to, you know, ask deeper questions um, and wanted to be more self-directed about my faith and my spirituality. And so uh, I started visiting other, other churches within my community, which is a hard thing to do if you grow up in community and everybody knows where you go to church and who you go with and how often you're in the pews. Um, to be visiting churches um, is, uh, is, is something um, unusual. But we did it anyway, my entire family, in fact, and we found the Episcopal Church, and um, we found that the ritual there and the liturgy was really speaking to mm -hmm. us, and also we found community, um, uh, Christ in action is, is what, we, what we call it. So now I'm a very active member in an Episcopal community in Athens called St. Paul's, um, and that's also where I'm doing a lot of contemplative prayer these days. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of an overview. I, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and um, I, I heard you say yesterday here at the Obama Foundation Summit that, um, you know, church wasn't just church. It was, it's, it was the center of social life. It was culture. It was who you knew. It was community. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You use this language of call, um, the call to come home. Uh, I also think that that's an inheritance from from that spiritual background. It probably is. And actually, I, when I look back at my remarks from yesterday, I see a, a spiritual um, my spiritual background woven mm -hmm. in there. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's scriptural, and sometimes um, it's just uh, from all, a lot of reading that I've done mm -hmm. on my own. So definitely informed by those by that vocabulary. Anand. Um, yeah, so the call to come home, your story, the story of your family actually begins with um, the opposite, equally vigorous human impulse to go elsewhere. Um, you, you said, my father crossed an ocean carrying $7 and his parents' prayers. Um, what was then the religious or spiritual background of your childhood in Ohio? I mean, I've always wanted to come on your show, but I've always dreaded the moment 
that if I did, you'd ask me that question, I'd, I'd just have to say, like, pass. Um, <laughs> well, nothing it, as... I define it um, very expansively. Linear, yeah, I know, I, yeah. I, I appreciate that part. Um, Your mind's incredibly linear. So you know, right. so I think in, a, in my family, it's probably a story of um, three-generation kind of religious vanishing. Um, so I would say probably all of my grandparents are pretty religious, Hindu. Uh, they all live in live or lived in India. Um, I think my parents um, probably don't believe in 95% of what their parents believed uh, in any of the specifics. I'm not even sure exactly whether they believe in God or not. It's a little too delicate to go there. Um, but I think do believe in certain sustaining of certain rituals, sustaining of um, certain elements of the culture, and perhaps some belief in a kind of higher power. And then by the time it got to me, I kind of don't believe in that at all. And I, I just share one like funny story around this when I got outflanked last week um, or a couple weeks ago. So it was Diwali, and my mom uh, sent me a text like, make sure you light a candle today. And I was like thinking to myself, like, well, I'm not really going to do that because I don't believe in this holiday and I'm not, I'm not in this religion and like why would I do that? So I, I kind of won that one. My wife was a little bit like confused about why it was so important to me not to do this. Um, and then I got to pick my son up from school the other day and they're like, oh, so every, they update the parents on what they did like for, to the two-year-olds. Like, well, we had a great day. We had crayons. We had this and that. And uh, we celebrated Diwali and explained <laughs> to everybody what it is and I was like, you know, you just can't win. You just, you can't win. So it's a it's a losing battle to be uh, spiritual free, but I'm mm. but but here I am on your show, <laughs> and you did just fine. Um, you you know a word that you use actually a, a fair amount is the word magic. Um, you actually ended up um, retracing your parents' steps in the other direction, actually kind of following a call to go home to to the home your parents left to India. And you, you say that there you found a magical story, um, the surge of hope and opportunity as the third world became the developing world. Um, and then yesterday at the Obama Foundation Summit, you said our present is a story of magic and loss. You, you took some language from Lou Reed. We live in an age of magic and loss. Um, just describe that, what you're seeing and what that language means for you there. I mean, I think when I'm using magic in that way, it's a little bit cheating on my answer to the first question, because I think while I don't believe in, um, I think, what people would call spirituality or religion, I don't believe in kind of any external gods or those types of things, I um, have a maybe an almost compensated belief in people and the power of what happens between people. Um, maybe the energy that for other people goes into Sunday and Wednesday um, for me goes into thinking about the fact that we it, it, it can't be that we're all just here to do a job and commute and raise a kid the same way everybody else does and that's it. Um, and that there are greater possibilities for what occurs between people than then people normally have the, the energy to achieve, but that we can do more together than we 
than we do. Um, and so I think it, I, I kind of have a, you know, I don't know, a civic spirituality. Mm-hmm. And part of why I'm a writer is I just think there is all this magic in, in the ordinariness of people and just how they think about their lives and their conflicts and their hypocrisies. I write a lot about hypocrisy in a way, but not out of contempt for people, but out of love for people. Because, you know, if you've ever, if you own a mirror, you know a lot about hypocrisy. And so that's what interests me in other people and the way in which we do have these elevated ideals, but it's very hard um, to live up to them and people try. Mm. Yeah. And, and actually I, I feel, and I certainly felt this listening to Whitney yesterday that that what you're living into is this everyday, age-old magic, not shiny magic like what technology makes possible, but the language you used of, of staying within sight and sound of each other and what happens when you do that. Um, I was trying to remember where I found that quote to begin with, staying within sight and sound of each other, but it's been kind of like a mantra that runs through my head these days. Um, I almost think it's Thomas Merton, perhaps. Um, but this, it's, it's kind of what drives my life um, living in Athens, living in a small rural town. Um, it's, it's how I'm able to cope with um, the divisiveness that I see globally and then nationally and then even locally it trickles down um, the pain and suffering of of this divisiveness um, is affecting all of us and I, the more I spend um, time with people the less I hurt so if when I'm uh, when I'm able to sit with people at a at a supper or um, we have a Monday contemplative sit actually at St. Paul's and I do that um, when I go to the arts center in my town and work on a community theater production, um, anytime I'm, I'm actually engaged um, in an activity or creating something with other people, I hurt less. And I'm, I'm hopeful that they do, too. Mm-hmm. So that's sight and sound for me. Um, you know, Anand, when you talk about the, the magic and the loss, it's... Some, very some very simple ways to start to talk about that are you know the magic of what automation automization and globalization make possible on the upside um but Whitney you're you're part of the country and small towns in general and the rural world in general here and elsewhere is uh, is to be very simplistic on the losing side of automation and globalization Mm -hmm. You you said um, you said something uh, yesterday that you said we can't counter and control the forces of automation and globalization, but we can control ourselves. I just that just so struck me because, you know, in the context of what we're learning about our brains, um, how many forces actually are working against us, controlling ourselves, especially where when we're vulnerable. That that's also a form of magic, of like ordinary magic. I guess I guess that's true, um, but at the same time, I'm finding that I think I said we can control our responses to these mm-hmm. forces, and and for me, a response means that it's a it's a thoughtful action and and a practice. And if it's something that you are are practicing, like you practice to play an instrument well, 
if you can practice how you are going to respond in these situations on a regular basis, then you're going to be more likely to do them more automatically. It's not as, it's not, it doesn't have yeah. to be magic. Um, it can be a, a learned response. Um, and that's not to say we need to accept the forces that are tearing our communities down. Um, globalization and automation are, are good in some ways, but they're, they're also really harming my community. Um, but having, having a response that is more about uh, leaning into connection when there's disconnection, leaning into, um, into creation when there's deconstruction happening, that's, that can become a practice. Mm. And that is, I mean, I, I wanted to ask you about that, that language of practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, because that, I mean, that really is also a, that is a, something that neuroscience is telling us that what we practice, we become, and it goes for behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting language. I think the practice of community is what you talk about. And I, actually, I want to read um, this blog post you wrote about going to yoga with your daughter. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that also makes you a 21st century person, right? Because, um, it's like, well, I do yoga too. That's probably why I love this. Um, she, she doesn't know that she is part of creating something everywhere she goes. Just her presence and her participation in this room is a life-giving force. Her round, confident face and eager blue eyes tell us that we are creating something wonderful in this room. I wonder if there will come a time when those eyes will dim a little bit and she will look around and ask me why we chose to live in Athens. If she follows in my footsteps, her dissatisfaction will begin around middle school and reach a fever pitch by her senior year. She'll apply to colleges in metro areas only, and she'll declare her interest in international studies. And maybe like me, she'll arrive in the big city and discover a kind of loneliness that hurts so badly it brings you to your knees. Maybe not. But if she does, that loneliness will fuel that flame inside her, and she'll start to re-examine her memories of our yoga nights at Art and Frame. She'll look back on us gathered there, surrounded by Betty Grater paintings and Julie's monster mermaids, and decide she wants that experience again for herself and for the people she loves so much. Or maybe she'll never question why we are so devoted to this small yet imperfect town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you think about the practice of community, what are some of the practices within that practice? So you just talked about, mm-hmm. I think this thing about practicing your responses is about not necessarily going with how you immediately feel, but choosing another response, even if it doesn't feel right. But what, what else? Um, mm-hmm. The hard work of staying is another, another uh, phrase. Like what, what is involved in that on a daily level? Um, Well, just thinking back about that essay I wrote, it's called Yoga Nights uh, at Art and Frame. And Art and Frame is just a little shop on our main street, um, and it's it's serving as the space for yoga. And, you know, none of us have really nice Lululemon clothes or I think that's the name of that brand. Which you did have, though, when you were in college. Which I did have in college. (laughs) Um, I like how you didn't admit that up front. <laughs> it's a lot cheaper now <laughs> to, live, to live in to live in Athens and just go to Art and Frame. And our yoga teacher is also a Sethra bus driver, and Sethra is our social um, social services um, bus. Uh, takes uh, people to where they need to go. So he also happens to teach yoga, and uh, so you know. 
there, there are those of us who, who would like to, uh, to experience a yoga class. So what do we do? We just make it happen. And I think that, uh, that takes um, a drive and, and that takes a little extra work to make it happen. Um, the, the Art and Frame Shop is just an old building. There, there are no mirrors around it. Um, we're just surrounded by paintings from local artists that have been framed on the walls. Um, uh, so I decided to take Lucy, my seven-year-old, to these yoga nights because I wanted her to see that just because we don't live in a, you know, in a big city where there are a million opportunities to do yoga in really nice studios, we can do it here. Um, and I think that's, that's how we do our work in Athens, and, in, and I think that's how rural people in general do their work, um, is they just get into this habit of creating um, what they're, if they feel like they're missing something, then, then let's create it and let's do it in a way that is reflective of our needs and who we are as a people. So, so that's what we were doing with yoga anyway. Mm. Um, and then there are, I'm, there are definitely other examples of that. Um, the hard, the hardest thing, um, for me sometimes about staying in community is, is when I sense the despair of the world growing it does trickle down, and I see it in my own community um, around addiction and around homelessness. When that kind of despair feels so overwhelming, I think I have the means, if I wanted to, to, to get up and leave um, and go create a life that, where I, I don't have to be a part of that um, in particular. Um, but, then, but then, you know, I watch a film like the one I just watched in a previous session here at the Obama Summit, um, about the opioid addiction, and I see these three women in this film who are um, leading an effort to connect with their community members to pull them out of addiction, or at least to hold their hands as they try to get out of addiction. And that kind of relationship is a meaning-filled relationship. That is, that is what nourishes my spirit, um, uh, is being in close contact with people in that way. Hmm. And we get to do that uh, every day in some way in, in a small town. The question, um, where are you from? Where are you from? Was a question that begins a story, Anand, that you've that is at the center of your book, The True American Murder and Mercy in Texas, and this beautiful TED talk um, you gave about that. It's it really struck me getting ready to have this conversation with the two of you, and that 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 question was right in the middle of that story. It is, and I'm going to actually, in a very compressed way, um, tell you, th I just realized the other day that that question, where are you from, has just always been with me and a part of my life. Mm -hmm. And I have three versions of it that are very interesting and different, and I'm going to do them really fast. Version one actually happened in India. I've been asked it all my life, but when I moved, so I moved to India after college, where I'd never lived, to you know, basically annul all of my parents' hard work in trying to emigrate to America. It's really the ultimate rebellion. Um, and in India, people would be like, where are you from? And I'd be like, you know, Cleveland, Ohio. And they're obviously very, very unsatisfied with that. So they'd be, they'd be like, no, but like, where are you? You know, like, wink, like, where are you really from? And they, you know, they want, so I was like, well, my, my parents, Grew up in Bombay. I'm like, ah, it's not, 
you know, where are they ethnically from? And finally we'd keep going and they would get like ethnic ancestral villages and they'd be satisfied. Um, then this book, The True American, is like the opposite side of that, which is the immigrant, uh, not me in this case, but an immigrant I was writing about who gets shot in the face by a white supremacist after 9-11 and the only thing he heard from the shooter right before he got shot was, where are you from? And he said, excuse me. And because he said, excuse me, those two words in his accent, the white supremacist in his twisted logic knew, yes, I'm correct. This is someone I should shoot. Um, so those are two very kind of different. And then the third one that complicates and, and comes close to what I'm so moved by in Whitney's story is this guy came to our house, like an older white uh, manager of a electronic store to install a stove. And he was installing the stove and he's standing in my living room. And yet again, this question comes up, where are you from? And he says it to me, standing in my house in Brooklyn delivering a stove. Now this is a third meaning of the question, right? And we all know what the guy's after. And in the most uncharitable, but kind of honest interpretation of the situation, he's like, why are you brown, right? Like, what's up with your brownness? Where are you from? Like, he, he wasn't looking for Ohio, right? Um, <laughs> and I knew, I mean, you could just tell, right? I knew, I knew what he was after. And so in that moment, normally, I get angry. And I like, or I just, you know, I'm like, I, I just do what I did in India. Like, I'm from Cleveland, right? Deliberately unsatisfying. But for, in this moment, for some reason, I tried another thing. Um, and I said, you know, I'm originally from Cleveland, like glazed over look. But, I mean, i born in Cleveland, but originally from India. My family is Indian. And I clearly, like, you know, he got what he wanted. And then in this, like, awkward, un-PC, lovely way, he's like, I thought so. You know, um, my, my uh, brother married an Indian woman. And our family was not a great family. But when she came into our family, it kind of fixed everything. And she's the light of our whole family. And I thought you might, you know. And it was just actually a really transformative moment for me by any, by any reading of kind of woke America's standards, the guy was wrong. You don't ask a brown guy in his living room in Brooklyn where he's from. But when I somehow, for whatever random reason, decided to like move past the small thing and like see what was there, what was actually there was a guy who had not been raised to have this conversation trying to basically tell me, I really like the country that you seem to me to be ancestrally from because it saved my dysfunctional family. <laughs> and I think about that conversation a lot because I think we actually don't know statistically how often when people like him make that attempt, how often would it go the racist way and how often are they trying to do what he was trying to do? Yeah. And so when we talk about connecting across these boundaries in America, I think a lot about how do we like have more of those moments without people like me having to like answer, you know, show our papers in our living room and yet get the juice that I got out of going there. We're so, um, we're so fixated though when we think of the other, what that other is, on the loudest, worst exemplars. And we have that we, we internalize that, that worst expectation of everybody who seems to walk into that territory. I mean, you were talking yesterday about, I want you to like spin this out a bit, the, 
the difference between like not quite woke, not quite hateful. I mean, I think what you're speaking to is this middle ground that we hardly know how to, this human ground that we hardly know how to inhabit with each other, which has something to do with just getting an impulse to control our immediate responses, um, but also just like being willing to be surprised. You know, there's this concept that some economists talk about about the kind of barbell economy. There's no middle anymore. It's kind of super rich people, and there's the mass of the poor, and the middle class is dying, and people talk about that in different professions. There's no middle in, you know, journalism. There's like Tom Friedman's, and there's a bunch of freelancers for the Huff Post. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it's just they don't pay a lot of money. Um, and I think there's an interesting kind of barbell phenomenon also with tolerance and inclusion. So there's like woke America, which is very good on issues of inclusion and pluralism or whatever, but is so specific in how it believes the conversation should go down and what the terms are and... And all the different components that have to be there for any of those beliefs to be taken It's like seriously. talking to North Korea. There's preconditions. We'll talk after you've done all the right things. We won't talk to get you to do the right things, right? And so... Um, and so we, and and so woke America like has those preconditions to meet the others, and then the, and then there's you know we can't discount the fact that the other end of the barbell right now is a really vicious, hateful politics that genuinely derives pleasure from causing pain to marginalized and vulnerable people, and has transferred the anger over you know bankers taking people's houses onto like, you know undocumented immigrants and people wearing hijabs. So those are the barbells. And I feel like the guy delivering the stove is in that middle. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the numbers, but I suspect there's like a lot more people there who are just invisible to this conversation. But who are really, and I don't say the middle is one word, like, who are really the heart of our life together. Like Absolutely. I think most of us on any given divide are between those poles where there is no gray, and there's no curiosity, and there are no questions. And, and I think what's interesting about those folks in the middle is, for whatever reasons, I think they are poachable by either end of the barbell. Huh. Right? They're not committed or against either of those ends. In the right moment, you lose your house, and a certain TV network pushes a certain ideology on you, and some demographic group in your neighborhood rises, and you can go to this barbell. And on the other hand, you get a new job, and you learn computer programming, and something works out for you, and you actually like your new black president, and, and actually, you go this way. I think I'm talking about a group of people who I think are not swing voters in the sense of elections, but are swing voters between a kind of politics of hate and a politics of love. Mm -hmm. And what I really fear, frankly, thinking of myself as someone who's part of close to that politics of love worldview or that inclusion worldview is I think we're terrible at even attempting to win over those people in the middle. And you, um, you speak of the, the great challenges before us as moral, that they, that they can't be met by or defined merely by commercial or technological tools, which is actually the robust vocabulary we have for talking about complex challenges. 
When I think about what Whitney's talking about, the word that comes to me is commitment. Um, it's not just that you came home or that you, you know, you're committed to your home. And the, it, the, you're committed to it in a way that to me almost sounds more like the way people talk about marriage, mm-hmm. right? And it's, you're, you're not there because you know it's going to be good. You're, you're willing to be there even if it's not great. Um, and I think what's happened to us is that we're not committed to each other as a people. So it's almost like we are in this kind of situation where any disappointment that we encounter in our fellow citizens is like a reason to break up. And any deviation from deeply fulfilling each other as fellow citizens is like a tragedy. And part of you know, commitment um, as a citizen is embracing other people's dysfunction and embracing other people's incompleteness because you know you have your own. Um, and again, I'm not, I, I'm not interested in embracing the people with the tiki torches in Charlottesville. But there's eight levels of concentric circles of people that start to number in the millions around them in terms of support, enabling, slight intrigue, merely passive, not speaking out about it. And I am really committed to those people. I, I don't think it makes sense, regardless of the politics, to be in resistance against those people. You resist power if you need to resist something. Um, and I think too many of us have confused what we need to do power to protect rights and we've ended up in resistance to each other mm-hmm. yeah absolutely I agree so much with that and um, and on at the local level that resistance can sometimes be a resistance to living in community in a committed way in a humble way um, where you are recognizing that you yourself have your own dysfunctions um, and uh, and weaknesses um, and then I think sometimes, too, we, are, uh, we have this blind spot where we think we need to be addressing these big global issues, um, and we forget what is ours to do in the moment. What, you're, what is yours to do does not necessarily have to be to, um, to bridge all divides across, across the country. Um, it doesn't have to be to end the opioid epidemic. Um, what is yours to do could just be right in front of you and in a small in a small place, um, that is that is so e- much easier to see sometimes um, that just one action or one point of connection um, can uh, strengthen your humility and commitment um, to the space around you. It, it's also more likely if you are working in a place w- where you know people, where there's relationship and commitment that what you're doing will actually be what needs doing as opposed to what you think. I mean, there's a lot of action, kind of macro action, that's not mm-hmm. informed by that, that intelligence. I wonder, so Anand and I are both, you know, we're both from, we're both in the media and we do things that are slight, somewhat divergent from what we learned, but we're still part of this. And I... I wonder, um, 
the story of our time, like as you know, how, when you read newspapers, if you do, and everybody doesn't anymore, um, or when you when you read news or hear news or hear the story of our time, the official story of our time as it gets told, like what is missing for you in terms of the story of our time that is being lived in Athens, Tennessee? Uh, well, the news that the newspaper I read is a daily newspaper that's in my local community, and I read the obituaries first. Um, and uh, you know, that's that's a common practice um, for us. And then, um, you know, if I'm reading the New York Times online, I'm intrigued by the flyover picture that gets told of, especially rural communities. There's not a whole lot of embedded. Um, journalists at the moment who are, I think, um, spending the real time it's going to take to tell the nuanced, complex story um, of historical trauma in rural communities. Um, so when I read those those mainstream, more mainstream newspapers, I'm struck by how that complexity is not is not there. I'm also I also see a lack of human connection, but I'm looking for that all the time. I'm practiced at looking for that. Um, mm -hmm. There's, I was just looking at my notes. There's something you... Yeah, I think, for example, that the language of flyover and even the language of Rust Belt is so demeaning that, like, we think that's okay. We thought that was okay all through the election mm -hmm. to talk about places people come from mm -hmm. and love as the Rust Belt. And there's something where you were writing, where you... Um, a piece you wrote in New America... I just... This was just like an alternative, right? You, you were talking about being with 50 other rural leaders and colleagues from 17 states working in health, education, energy, and investment. You say, we came from Indian country, the Black Belt, Appalachia, the Delta, the Midwest, and the Colonias. What's that? Mm -hmm. the Those are unincorporated townships on the long, uh, along the Texas-Mexico border. The Colonias along the border. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, uh, those are all part of rural America. And I think, you know, people often think of rural America as this monolith um, that's white, poor, angry, racist, bigoted, all those things. In fact, when I was invited to speak at this, I w it was suggested that I address some of those stereotypes. But that, uh, that exhausts me, the, hmm. the idea of, um, of having to be the apologist for rural. Um, that's <laughs> not what I want to do. So... Uh, and I, and I love, and I, part of my talk yesterday, I wanted to make sure I highlighted that rural America is this incredibly diverse place that includes all those beautiful spaces right. um, that all have different issues um, at the forefront of their minds, but a lot of them are the same, too. So, um, I want to talk about this, um, the elites, which I think we were kind of wandering into that space. Um, how do, how do you define the elites? I mean, and this is, this is a global phenomenon, right? This is this new way of talking about a chasm. I mean, I think there's a, you could define it any number of ways, um, many of which are not, have nothing new to them. So there's financial elites, there's educated, right. educated elites, there's, um, you know, landed elites or whatever. But I think what's new and interesting in our time is a global phenomenon um, that I think about as people that you can get into it through money or through education or through, you know, raw intellectual ability or artistic talent. There's different ways in. I think what defines it is a group of people 
better connected to each other than to anywhere. Um, so for uh, the purposes of this conversation, I think part of what in a globalized, you know, globalization hasn't landed equally. I mean, Tom Friedman, um, in addition to being super rich, is just like super wrong about the world being flat. Um, uh, it's, it's only flat in business class, you know, and um, flatbed seat. The world is a flatbed seat. Um, but, you know, I think it's actually an incredibly spiky world, as, as I think Richard Florida or someone mm. else pointed out. And so a relatively small group of people was uniquely placed to take advantage of a world that had suddenly all these new possibilities for connection, um, that suddenly saw India and China open up with two and a half billion people ready to like eat McDonald's and drink Pepsi. And there were just, you know, there were some people who were like, really ready to go do that and and had the skills to do it and had the languages and um, a world in which financial deregulation has happened and you can move money with one click. Again, there was just a group of people who once that became possible, once the U.S. changed financial regulations in the 70s and all this pension money was able to be invested, who were just there and able to take advantage of these opportunities. And in places like Athens and most of the surface area of the world, actually all these amazing changes like didn't actually change most people's possibilities, right? right? Um, it's amazing all that we've invented without actually changing most people's bottom line. Uh, the bottom half of Americans on average has not earned a dollar more over the last 35 years. So, and what's lacking, so, so there was some kind of waking up during the election season of, you know, Tom Friedman and his colleagues one by one admitting that they were shocked that they hadn't seen, they hadn't known people were disadvantaged and angry, which is kind of shocking because they'd been reporting the things that, um, what's been missing for me, and especially since the election, is any acknowledgement of their complicity, our complicity, right? The elites, they are us. I mean, I speak for myself. Um, that, that feeling at home in a, in a certain, not being, not feeling absolutely on the losing side of all of this change, um, all the ways you describe it. I mean, you know, also if you're paid by the year and not the hour, um, if no one you know uses meth, if you live near a Whole Foods, um, I'm I'm wanting to hear. I mean, I was in a room of academics the other the other week, and one of them talked about how he thought they needed to really start doing serious research studies about elites. A, a professor at Berkeley, and I thought, does he not? And the way he said it was not to understand. And I'm not. I'm like I mean, you know, I'm in a glass house, right? But but I so I, but it's something about awareness of that. It's lacking. What's so interesting, I was, I was talking um, some weeks ago with a writer friend of mine, Catherine Boo, and some of you may know her incredible book on India, Behind the Beautiful Forevers. Um, and we were talking about, you know, when, you, when there is injustice in the world, when there's inequality, when there are haves and have-nots, the journalist can, can train their attention on kind of one of two different places. And the obvious place to go is the kind of drama and color of the people who are on the wrong end of that distribution. It's always more interesting. 
more colorful, more beautiful. You get to some Indian slums where there's a gutter, or you get to you know Chicago inner city neighborhood where there's gangs. And you know, for, if you're a writer and you're trying to get material, you're always going to go there. And by the way, those people don't have PR agencies. They're not going to sue you. They're usually very nice and open and happy to tell their story. So there's this weird way in which a lot of us writers, when we see the, a power divide, really chronicle like the wrong end of it. I don't mean the wrong end of it, like it's the wrong choice, but just the bad end of it, the sad end of it. And she was saying, and, and this is sort of what I've been doing more recently after realizing the same thing about my work, is that you know we maybe need to pay more attention to the people who are architecting and engineering the world in which these people are forced to live. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not actually covering the choices that are made to allow people to live like this. Right, but it's also not these cartoon characters, super rich people who we can take down. It's like, it's what feels ordinary to a lot of totally. us. Totally, and, and that's, and by the way, it's the same thing when you go do that work on the poor end of things. Yeah. It's not the cartoon character of whatever right. you think that is. Right. But so it's not to say that elites are bad people. I mean, we are all, like if you're in this room listening to this taping, I'm sorry, but you may be elite. Um, <laughs> It, the more interesting story is the ways in which good people mm-hmm. preside over indecent decisions. Um, you know, to take one example that I talked a little bit about yesterday, in theory, no one in this room could provide one philosophical justification for any public school in America having a different level of per-student funding than any other public school. Right? Does anybody here, like, raise your hand if you, if you want to give me any kind of philosophical justification for it? Right, I thought so. <laughs> right? But n- has anybody fought that issue? Mm-hmm. Right? right, and if we don't claim this, as you say, if we don't call ourselves out, just by way of naming, telling truth, um, we, can't reckon, we can't reckon with that. We can't hold those questions. And I, mean, I think it's just yeah. understanding that the world isn't as it is by natural forces, as, as you know, one of the speakers said yesterday. The world is engineered. And the hopeful thing about that is it is actually not that complicated to engineer differently. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that have made the world more kind, decent, and fair are kind of boring, simple, technical, and magnificent. You know, the 40-hour work week, it's like how boring, like what can be more boring than a 40-hour work week? Do you know what that, if you actually just think for a second of what that did to people's lives, the races to the bottom that that prevented, mm-hmm. right? Or getting rid of child labor. I mean, we've all been to countries where they haven't gotten rid of that yet, right? It's a boring technical law with some obscure agency that probably still enforces it just in case we don't even know the name of. Mm-hmm. It's a boring little accomplishment mm-hmm. that was not boring and little if you were a laboring child. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is if you've grown up in what I call the age of markets, which is kind of the last 30, 40 years, you actually don't know the story of how we made the world more decent. Mm -hmm. And Whitney, like, how does this whole, the notion of elites and the conversation to the extent that there is one about that, like, how does that land in in your world or in, in your ears? Well, there, I mean, there are different levels of how it plays out, um, you know, on the ground, but then in, in terms of 
rural advocacy and rural policy, I think there's um, a case to be made uh, around bridging rural interests with urban interests because we're both, our, our futures are so tied together. Um, so I feel like, in fact, I'm kind of a transient person. I go back and forth, I mean, to conferences like this certainly, but um, um, to D.C. and actually the only way to, I feel like, break down the, those elite barriers is to, um, for, for both of those sides to to come together in, in conversation you're, about you're a bridge specific, person, right? I mean, yeah. you have a you have a leg in both. I think worlds. so. Yeah, I think I do. Um, I have been wondering how am I going to go home after this and you know top this this experience in a way, um, and 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 reclaim my space in in a smaller place. Uh, but it'll. But I'm sure I'll pick it right back up. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there, there's. I was thinking um, before I gave my talk yesterday, you know, all the way up to the last moment, you're thinking of how you might change it to make Mm -hmm. it more compelling or um, or to land better or or to be more authentic and true. Um, And a a book that I read recently by a woman named Eddie Hillisum, she was a um, these are actually her journals and her letters. Um, She died at Auschwitz camp um, in the 19, uh, well, in, in World War II, of course, and uh, she was 23 years old or so, and the first half of the book are her, um, is, is her journaling, um, and, and it's about her life leading up to the moment where she's going to be taken to a work camp, and the second part are her letters from that work camp, um, and so she's living in this really elite world on the, on the one side as she's journaling, and she's not um, in a work camp yet. And then, but she, all that time, she's been trying to develop practices that will allow her to transition her life um, across the spectrum to this work camp. And, um, and it's all about, it, it really is all, all about human connection, is figuring out how to find out, uh, to be curious about other people's stories, um, and once she does get to the camp, her her letters from that camp are all about just these daily human interactions. Um, and I think these categories of elite and um, and not um, are sometimes false and red herrings, and they keep us from you know just really looking at the people in front of us in our mm-hmm. situations mm-hmm. as they are, um, and they keep us from finding those bridges to one another. So. And there is also a hard edge to to the um, you know to these discussions, these interrelated discussions now, even that where the elite piece comes in. Um, you know, people who say there's so much injustice, and we we've, we've been neglecting our inner cities forever, and people have been vulnerable and endangered there forever, and those children not growing up with the care or the dreams they deserve. And then suddenly we're paying so much attention to uh, white communities that um, forever have been the beneficiaries um, and now, in fact, are suffering from some policies and structures that started out to essentially punish black people. And, and this argument goes that, you know, history is long and, and this was, these were privileged places and now that privilege has been taken away and it's just hard knocks. Um, back to that uh, 
film that I watched in this last session about the opi opioid addiction, I mean, I've, this, this is a really uh, risky thing for me to say, but I just feel like, you know, I'm only one, one pill away from, you know, being that person. It's like we're all actually very close to the edge. No matter how secure we think we are, we're not. You know, there's no, uh, there's no guarantee that you will not suffer. There is no guarantee that you will not eventually be on the, on the, the losing side of a policy. So what can you do now to, to start digging in and seeing how you can um, not avoid it for yourself, but just change that, reform the, the system? Um, I think we are all just so close to that line, and we've got to live with the tension of knowing um, that one day we may be here and one day we may be on the other side. There was this article in The New Yorker recently about the opioid, about the the very wealthy philanthropic family that is behind the drug mm -hmm. company that gave rise to the opioid crisis. And the, I think the thing that haunted me, and so much about that article haunted me, but I, the thing I can't stop thinking about is when there was some case brought finally somewhere in rural America, um, part of the evidence was a picture of the high school class of, I don't know, 2013, and half of the kids, or the high school football team, and half of those kids had died of Opioid overdose. What's your, I don't know, I just wonder what you're thinking about this. I think one of the things I'm thinking about is thinking about a place like Athens or any number of rural spaces. Um, I think the most dangerous, exciting possibility in American politics has always been the possibility that um, mostly white rural communities would actually come into coalition with black communities, with whom actually there is an enormous amount of overlapping interests. A lot of people on minimum wage in both of those worlds. Um, a lot of people benefit from those kinds of programs that came out of the New Deal that protected workers. Um, and if you, know, if you look at books like The New Jim Crow, one of the arguments is that at every moment in American history, when there was an inkling of a possibility that folks in rural white America might actually start to see things through an economic lens and therefore find themselves in coalition with black and brown people and other marginalized people, there was a real fear of that coming together and an attempt to then sell those more, those kind of lower income whites racism as a substitute for progress. And so if you're a political entrepreneur in America today and you're actually interested in stitching the country back together and also maybe winning, um, I would almost start by thinking about like, what are the set of, what are the five ideas that would make you win all the counties around you and the south side of Chicago and Oakland, right? Almost just start with those communities and say like, how could you draw five policies that would actually bring that together? And not start with where we are right now where you have white nationalism and this and that and wokeness and you know, black lives, like let's start over and say if we had to win all these people, um, how would we do it? And I think it would actually lead us to a very different conversation than we've had because we've, it almost seems like right now we're optimizing for having the most divisive conversation we could possibly have. Yeah. 
and there's so many things. We're like in all these repetitive patterns. When I go talk to people, like I'll tell you a boring issue that just comes up all the time everywhere you go when you talk to real people in this country, which is like the fluctuation of hours and of work, right? If you just go to any store and you actually overhear people are talking about when they work in the store with each other or any restaurant, like it's hours shifting week to week, it's not getting enough hours, it's people employing you 29 hours so they don't have to give you health care. It's just hour, hours, 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 right? Like if I was a smart politician in America, which I will never be for both reasons of both of those words, you know, I think I would like go after that because people really don't care about their race and religion when they're being exercised and animated by that issue. But I think we have such unimaginative leaders who are so bad at turning, you know, you've talked about anger is what pain looks like in public, who are so bad at anticipating pain before it has kind of frothed yeah. into anger. Yeah. Could you imagine that conversation, that move? I certainly would love to have a conversation about um, leadership and what, um, how we kind of be better democratize leadership, that there, there are people out there who are doing incredible um, pieces of work and, um, and could be that person who stitched together the country. Um, and I, I happen to think they might even be coming from rural America. Um, but, you know, maybe their voices haven't got the platform yet to be heard because they don't have broadband access or, um, you know, there's just there are reasons why we haven't lifted up that um, those leaders um, who are kind of unknown at the moment. Um, but I do feel like there's this incredible lack of really good leaders in the in the world, in the country who who we're hearing who we're not. We're just not hearing good leadership that's uh, that's around bridge building, that's around leaning into um, tough conversations uh, in a grace filled and humble way. Um, there are not that many people out there who are just really ex exciting us um, enough to stitch together these mm -hmm. ideas. Do you think it is a lack of those people or um, a lack of visibility for them or, as you say, platforms for mm -hmm. them or also a formation? Mm -hmm. I think it's, I mean, I think it's all of the above. I don't actually think there's a lack of leaders. I think there's just, yeah, there's a yeah. lack of, um, they're, yeah, they're being uh, connected and, and brought up. Mm -hmm. um, if I can just make a point work. about leaders, I think we also look for stock characters. We're not very imaginative. So, like, if I if I think about who are yeah. kind of interesting bridge figures, borrowing from this idea of intersectionality, but you know, trying to make it a little more practical, is you know, we think about like white, like the rural in you know Rust Belt, rural. Yeah as like a white world. Well, it's not entirely a white world. There's all these black people who lost their jobs to China. Like right. China didn't like spare all the black people, you know? And so like I would think about a laid off black worker in Indiana, right? Who is totally credible speaking to that community on we need to tighten up on trade. We need to tighten up on immigration. But I'm also black and member of, I under, also see the world from the wrong end of power, and like it doesn't have to go in the direction of the Klan, mm -hmm. right? Or you think about a slight, you know, a white person from Queens instead of Alabama, right? Mm -hmm. right? Like a white cop from Queens or Staten Island who lives in New York City, chooses to live in New York City, is comfortable with living with eight million people, a quarter of whom are foreign born, but is white and understands what it means to live in. America being white in a time when 
white privilege is in decline, and can speak to white people who are pissed about that, and also can say, at the end of the day, it's really awesome to live in a city of eight million people from all over the world. Mm -hmm. But are we running white politicians from Queens? Are we running black industrial laid off workers from Indiana? I don't really see them. We're, we run a lot of stock characters who then just kind of confirm these tribes. There's, we have, this country is full of people who scramble the tribes. This country is full of people who hate illegal immigrants and are married to them. Yeah, right. And it's a collusion, it's a collusion of politics and media because it's, it's also what we shine a light on, what we reward. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, in a conversation about healing our fractured common life with Anand Giridharadas. Did I say that right? You, you're getting better and better every day. <laughs> like America, like America. <laughs> You're perfecting yourself. Okay, time. I'll probably re-record this in the studio, but let's try it anyway. <laughs> Our Fractured Common Life with Anand Giridharadas and Whitney Kimball Co. We're at the Obama Foundation inaugural summit in Chicago. Um, we just oh, we're we're, we're going to finish on time because this is radio. Um, so I want to see where I want to go for our last few moments. Um, Anand, you told this story yesterday about the starfish, the starfish and the Grinch. Would you just tell that briefly? So there's this very popular parable that is doing the rounds. I actually don't know who the original author of it is. It's, if you look on the internet, there's many claimants. Um, but the story is that... Uh, Two friends are walking on the beach and see thousands of starfish, and one friend picks up a few of these starfish and throws them back into the ocean um, to save them, and the other is looking at these thousands and thousands of starfish and said, you know, what difference does it make? And the thrower says it makes a difference to that one as he kind of perfectly tosses one back. And the story is popular in our age because it's a story about, I think, um, making the small little doable change that you can make, not asking the questions that I think the Grinch, the guy asking what difference does it make, was perhaps getting at, but silenced by the storyteller, censored by the storyteller. And, and I think the Grinch was maybe getting at questions of like, why are the starfish being beached? What's happening to these starfish? Why are they ending up here? Um, I actually, to do that research, you know, I, I looked up like actually why do starfish get beached? <laughs> which is really like extra credit. It was not part of the parable at all. Um, and one of them, you know, mussel fishermen, mussel fishing, um, where they do a certain kind of dredging, is known to create these like massive beachings of thousands of starfish, as, as is climate change and storms. Um, and so what often happens and, is that we look at problems like all these kids who are not getting to graduation. That is, that is so terrible. It's so terrible. Let's do, a little, let's do a little Citibank charter school, and we will, um, we will you know, we'll, we'll, we'll give them some nice gowns for the graduation, and we'll do photos, and be on the website. Um, and that charter school is real, and those kids are real, and, and they do graduate, and it's a, I mean, it's not, it's not worse than not doing it. But it is a way of not looking at foreclosures. It's a way of not looking at 
redlining. It's a way of not looking at what responsibilities a company like Citibank, and I'm picking one out of any number, hopefully not a sponsor of this show, might have <laughs> for why those kids aren't graduating. Because those kids are probably not waking up being like, okay, I better not graduate so I can maintain these national statistics. Um, they want to graduate. Something's coming between them and graduating. Something is beaching the starfish. And we often, I think in an earlier age, people came of age in the 60s, I think we're better at asking what's happening to the starfish. Mm -hmm. And I think our age, which is the age of, you know, Reaganomics and market solutions to things and the social enterprise as, as the kind of new New Deal, um, is actually not so good at asking why the starfish are being beached. It, it's also a question that is taking a longer sense of time, a generational sense of time, which we don't, or it's like our sense of time is so compressed now. I mean, something that struck me when you told the story here at the, at the beginning of the, this summit is, um, you know, we think the Grinch is not acting, but, it, but maybe the Grinch is just getting started with his questions, which... Um, so is, autobiographical, is it? isn't it? <laughs> it's autobiographical, but it's also like... You and me a, are the Grinches with our questions. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful way to think about us as a people right now, and also just kind of let, like, dwelling with these big, hard, tangly questions. Um, but also it made me think, also as the person who grew up in a small town in Oklahoma, and I have to say, you know, I left, and I stayed away. And that's been on my mind and my heart this year. Um, um, but that the Grinch just starting to ask his questions is also would be a way to think about the people we don't understand in our midst right now aren't aren't asking the questions we're asking or seeing exactly what we're seeing. But I don't know, just like you know, they come to your door or you go to their door, like you did with that salesman. And you know, how do we create that space to let people get where we want to be, get to a good place that we that we have to create together at their pace or at a different pace? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, certainly in my community, it's a slower pace. So you know, I, I feel like I do have the space to measure a response in a way. Um, yeah. Um, I'm always thinking about just, you know, how do I show up? How do I show up in the world and, um, you know, in my community and beyond? And I'm, am I going to show up with an open mind and open heart and with a curiosity? Um, or am I going to go in guns blazing looking for a high for my ego and, um, you know, and see if I can nail this interview right now in a way? Um, and it's so it's it's uh, such a freeing way to live if you can approach all of these interactions from um, a more open, curious perspective. And I've seen so much of that here in this um, in this gathering space for over the past two days. People with eyes wide and they lean in. It's the most it, it's been the most amazing um, experience. And I hope everybody else has felt that way too. Um, 
that's that's where I, that's where I am these days. Hmm. How am I bringing myself into a space? You know, we live in a in an age that loves the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things you experience when you're a writer in this age, who tries to do tries to partake in an age old tradition of writing as criticism, as holding up a mirror, not as ten point planning, is that you get shamed for not offering solutions. I will, I mean, the number of times I've been yeah. at a cocktail party, I mean, I also maybe go to too many cocktail parties, um, but cornered by someone who's like, you know, it's all fine and good the way you've exposed this problem, but like, what's your plan? Right. Right? Which if you have any sense of like the history of writing, it's just not my job because it's literally everybody else's job. <laughs> That's literally what everybody else does. But we have a whole <laughs> other society besides me. Yeah. To do that. Okay, but it's also not actually how meaningful change is Correct. brought into Particularly motion. when I come up with it. So, <laughs> so when we actually relax our need for solutions, I think we create space for two things. One of which you just talked about, which is curiosity. When you can actually, instead of saying, how do you solve this? If you like Ta-Nehisi Coates' work or are provoked by it, instead of being like, okay, what's your plan? Let's start some curiosity. What does he make you curious about? Right? If you're white, what does he make you, now that you're unsettled or angry or agreeing or whatever, what are you left curious about? Mm-hmm. Um, don't ask him, don't, don't tweet at him asking for like the house bill he's going to introduce next week, although he did recommend one recently. At, like, figure out what you're curious about. And second, um, this idea of kind of creating space for criticism and understanding that criticism too is generative, to go back to that word you started with. And we've really, you know, like James Baldwin was generative. If you don't think James Baldwin was generative, you know, you're, you're missing the kind of sociology of how a society works. And yeah, and, but there's a, and it was hard, um, but also with a disarming use of language and not a sneer, right? Like, it's different from the critical language that's so abundant right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I don't, to, to me, Twitter trolls are not critics. But we do have mm-hmm. real people doing real criticism. Mm-hmm. And I think too often, you know, if there's a, if there's a single speaker slot for a feminist, it will go to Sheryl Sandberg because it's the smoothed-edged, not too harsh, you don't have to change anything too major, relatively non-critical version of the idea. And you got Catherine McKinnon or you know any number of other feminists who have a much, frankly, harder to take but real vision of what it means to live in a society in which men and women are equal, and they never get that slot. And we don't have space for them. And we actually used to have more space for them. Our magazines used to put them on the front. They were on TV. I mean, you remember when people like that were actually on TV? When is the last time, you know, as opposed to like political consultants being our entire TV? Who are these you're, political consultants? You're on TV. I'm, I, and I should not be. These people <laughs> should be back. Um, 
Like save save me from myself. I um, I, I, I actually we have to finish, but I I actually want to read something you said here yesterday in Chicago. And I think this was from yesterday. It may be your TED talk, but if it was yesterday. It is hardly the fault of the rest of us that those wielding unearned privilege bristle at surrendering surrendering it, but it is our problem. The burden of citizenship is committing to your fellow citizens and accepting that what is not your fault may be your problem. Um, as we close, I just want to ask both of you, uh, each of you, right now, um, what makes you despair and what gives you hope? Uh, Michelle Obama today talked about our children, and I've, I'm despairing and both hopeful because of our children. Um, and I'm thinking, I mean, of children everywhere, uh, but, you know, in, in, in rural communities, we're deeply worried um, for our children. Um, they're, they're facing a lot of hurdles and a lot of disparities. Um, but there's, they, they are also... Uh, our hope, and they're potentially our homecomers, the people who will come home and uh, bring back all that knowledge that they got elsewhere um, and marry it with the knowledge that they were brought up on. And that, that is the hope um, for our communities. So I think our children are both of those things. Anand? I think the despair is that... Um, We've fallen not just out of love, but out of interest with each other. Um, I think it's a despair that... Um, I actually think more and more of us love our America, but don't necessarily love America or Americans. We love the ones we love. We love the ones who love us. It's kind of become like a bad college relationship. Um, I think the hope, though, is that the very gamble of this country is an almost kind of Olympic test of could you take people who should not get along under any circumstances, who are, you know, predisposed to revolt against kings for what were frankly relatively minor oppressions in the history of oppression, um, who were often those immigrants who left Italy or left India when actually seven or eight of their siblings thought it was perfectly fine to stay. We were a country peopled by these kind of rowdy, restless, gamblers who tried to make it work. And I think we lost, have lost our way. Um, but I think if we can remember that the whole enterprise here is simply to try to make it work. That's the experiment. That's it. That's how you get the A. Um, we're not trying to make it work to create wealth. We're not trying to make it work to create innovation. We're not trying to make it work um, to restore some illusory lost greatness. We're trying to make it work to make it work. And if we can make this work, um, it perhaps suggests that uh, the world 
is not one as a world, but the world is actually one here in America. Um, what a great, great thing to try. Anand Giridharadas and Whitney Kimball Coe, I'm, I'm really grateful that you're both in the world, and it's a real honor to be in this conversation with you, and, and thank you all for coming. Thank you.